Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Charles of Spain, I am Philip, son of a king, who you have foully slandered. No! Please! Please don't kill me! Mercy! Please show me some mercy! I have money. I have lots of money. I can pay. If you spare my life, I will give you my weight in gold. And as you can see, I am far from skinny. You shall die. Please! Please spare me. I'll give you all my land. Leave France. I'll never return. Just spare my life, gentle, noble, remarkably good-looking knight. You shall die. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of England, episode 110, By Fire and Sword. Now that we've got the pleasantries out of the way, the man screaming for mercy was one Charles of Spain brilliantly acted by one of the world's leading actors. And the man with no mercy for the naked and defenceless Charles was one Philip of Navarre. Once the evil deed was done, Philip and his men rode furiously up the road outside the village where Philip's older brother, Charles of Navarre, was waiting to hear the outcome of the murder that he'd initiated. He had hated Charles of Spain and bitterly resented the power and influence he had with John, King of France. And now his rival was firmly out of the way. Charles of Navarre will acquire the nickname of Charles the Bad, and I have to say that never has a nickname been so richly deserved. Charles the Bad is really a figure in French history, but his path crosses ours so many times over the next 30 years or so, and he's such a fun character, I thought I'd introduce the lad to you all. In fact, this week's episode, gentle listeners, will be about platting. I have always loved platting. I have no idea why. Possibly something of a character flaw, but there you are. Something you need to know. Anyway, platting together three themes. 
the machinations of Charles of Navarre and the English court to make war, the strand of diplomacy for peace and the fate of King David and the Scots. Now, the key to understanding Charles the Bad is his background. He was the son of Philip of Evreux, a grandson of Philip III of France, and the son of Joan of Navarre, the daughter of Louis X of France. Like Edward, he'd been passed over for the throne of France because of the Salic law no-queen thing, and in fact his claim was probably better than Edward's. Charles liked to mention that he had royalty on both sides of the bedchamber as often as anyone would listen. Now, his mum Joan had initially done quite well from her birth and being passed over. She became the lord of the massive and immensely rich region of Champagne, along with Brie. She was Queen of Navarre because there was no Salic law there. But then her uncle, Philip V of France, had basically stiffed her. While she was still a little girl, he stitched her up like the proverbial kipper, taking Champagne and Brie back for the crown and leaving Joan with little more than a blankety-blank checkbook and pen, or in this case, the much less valuable territories in Normandy and Navarre. Navarre, by the way, just in case you don't know, is just over the southwest corner of France, straddling the Pyrenees and just above the Pyriancles. There's that joke again, third time. Charles really never got over this. As far as he was concerned, he was born to rule, and he should be at the high table, but in fact found himself an outsider. He wasn't a great soldier, but he was without doubt clever and had a passion for politics. Here's how a contemporary described him. A small man with a lively wit, a penetrating eye and an easy, unaffected eloquence. His astonishing shrewdness and extraordinary charm enabled him to find supporters as no other prince of the blood could do, not just among the common people, but among men of substance and power. The big point about Charles, as you'll see, is that he is utterly, utterly unscrupulous and without a shred of honour or honesty. Those of you who believe you get what you deserve in life will be relieved to know that he doesn't die well. But that's for a future episode. Anyway, his desire for power and resentment for those that had it led to his murder of Charles of Spain. Now, normally when a king sees one of his chief ministers murdered in cold blood, there's something of a reckoning. So, Charles started talking to Lancaster and Edward, who were, of course, most excited at the thought of such a powerful ally in France, and access again to France through Charles's lands in Normandy. An invasion was planned, agreement signed. But it's quite clear that for Charles, this was always the worst of all possible options. Mainly, he was just messing with John's head and trying to get a bit of leverage. And initially, it got him exactly what he'd wanted. So in 1354, a treaty was signed with John that gave him even more territory in Normandy. There's then this lovely ceremony where Charles is supposed to beg John's forgiveness and receive his lands back, plus extra, as a result of the king's great generosity of spirit, blah, blah, blah. But of course, Charles isn't prepared to beg because he thinks he's still in the driving seat. And John's still livid, but just doesn't have the power to cut his legs off as he'd really like to. So there's a wonderful bit of theatre where Charles speaks in John's presence to John's mum about how sorry he is 
Then John's mum says, that's okay, think nothing of it. And then everyone leaves. And John hasn't said a word or even looked at the guy. So Charles then dropped Lancaster and Edward like a warm bun to their fury and humiliation. Next time they swore they would not be so easily fooled, although in point of fact, next time they were, in fact, just as easily fooled. But anyway, it was clear that John and Charles didn't get on, and that couldn't be good for French government, so never mind, maybe things weren't so bad. Well, the hatred was real. And yes, it just couldn't last. John was a man who believed in the dignity of his office, was desperate to prove himself, and the humiliation of accepting Charles back in the face of such provocation grated at his soul. And so in November 1354 he cracked. He announced that all of Charles's lands in France were forfeit. Charles legged it to Navarre, started planning, and picked up the phone to Lancaster and Edward again. His brother Philip sat in his castles in Normandy, daring John to just come and take them. While all this is going on, yet another round of diplomacy was going on under the auspices of the Pope as normal. I've never seen fit to mention all these rounds of diplomacy before, because they never really went anywhere, but now, this time, the difference was that the whole thing looked to have real legs. An initial meeting had happened at a place called Guin, near Calais, which was becoming the traditional place for the English and the French to meet, just like the old oak tree at Gisors had been back in the times of the Angevins and the Vexer. Happy days. Anyway, the news on the streets was that John had agreed to the basic formula that would dominate future negotiations. The French would give the English territory, in this case all of wider Aquitaine and Greater Anjou into the bargain, in return for Edward making peace and renouncing his claim to the throne of France. But the really big thing was that he'd hold all of those lands in full sovereignty, i.e. not doing homage for them to the King of France. Now that was the clincher. That was a deal and a half, and I imagine there was a certain amount of excited dribbling going on at Westminster. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, Platt Three. The ranch, in this case, being the Tower of London, you've still got poor old King David of Scotland, sitting there like a lemon. He's been sitting there for eight years now, as poor old David, and he's beginning to get bedsores. The trouble is that the Scots are doing just fine without a king, thank you very much. You may remember that the Battle of Neville's Cross had been partially lost by David because a chap called Robert the Stuart ran away. Well, in point of fact, this turned out to be a pretty good career move for the lad, since Robert the Stuart was now guardian or steward of Scotland, however rubbish he might have been, further evidence that running away can often be the best policy. So there's King David in the tower, there's Robert the Stuart sitting pretty, and over in the west, Edward Balliol was still pretending to be the real King of Scotland. Remember him? Grandson of John Balliol? The plaything of Edward I had a brief moment in the sun after Duplin Moor. Well, he's sitting over in the west, where his family used to be something, telling everyone he could have been a contender. The Scots can't quite shift Balliol, but he's really not going anywhere either. And then you've got William Douglas. Now, 
I often get people telling me that there are too many names in the history of England and I do deeply, deeply sympathise and accept mea culpa, mea maxima culpa, that I have consistently failed to deal with this problem. There are two William Douglases actually and I apologise to any Scots who might be out there but I'm going to ignore one of those Douglases in the interest of name reduction. So William Douglas. William Douglas is a Scottish lord who's doing that Scottish borders thing. Living in the forest, coming out, raiding into England, killing, looting, destroying, raping, burning, then melting back into the forest, that sort of thing. Around him grow a whole load of families who did exactly the same thing, killing, looting, destroying, raping, burning, then melting back into the forest. On the other side of the line, the English were every bit as bad as the wardens of the northern marches, the Nevilles and the Percys, tried to stop them. Or did the same thing in Scotland, killing, looting, destroying, raping and burning. And meanwhile, the north became a green desert. Just to give you a flavour, here's a pretty typical day-in-the-life account of what was completely standard fare for the borders. Earl Patrick invaded England and pillaged the country to within two leagues of Roxburgh, taking at least 2,000 animals and many prisoners. When they had collected up their booty and burned the land around, they marched back to their base at Dunbar. They got only four leagues beyond the border when they were cut off by a company of our men from Roxburgh, who dismounted and attacked them on the march. The Scots were soundly thrashed, more than half their number killed or captured. Now, of course, I've chosen an account where the English run out winners. I have no doubt there are an equal number going the other way. The point is that it is chaos. From Edward's point of view, it's not too awful. He allocates the resources of the counties north of the River Trent to the defence of the north, gives those to the wardens of the northern marches and lets the wardens get on with it. So just to recap the Scottish thing for a moment then. The Scots, dramatis personae. Robert the Steward is like Denethor in The Lord of the Rings. The king's gone, he's looking after the place while he's not there, and yep, pretty happy with that. Who needs a king anyway? Balliol is your Saruman. Thinks he's a contender, but is in fact just a loser. And Douglas is the, let's say, Faramir of the Peace, carrying out a guerrilla war against the Sauron of the Peace, who in the Scottish idiom would have, of course, to be the King of England, Edward. Just to carry this on a bit, since I'm rather enjoying this, maybe King David is Aragorn. Though not sure how well that works, since Aragorn is really cool, while King David was a loser, and also King David would have to have been a better singer. Anyway, does that help at all? So while all of this is happening, Edward's finding that his ability to negotiate with King David is leaking away for two reasons. Firstly, because Edward remains, publicly at least, appallingly unreasonable in his demands. But mainly, actually, because being away from home meant that David quickly lost his power and influence. That's the trouble with the Middle Ages. It's not about being contacted by billions of nameless and faceless government agencies chasing you to pay for your tax disc and all that. It's all personal. A web of half-promises and patronage, a drop of family blood here, the odd marriage, a bit of this, a pinch of that. And despite being God's anointed and all, David is not in the game. From the Scots' point of view, 
Getting him back would cost a fortune and a whole bag of trouble. So... In 1352, they come close to a deal. David was actually released on parole, took the deal on offer to the Scottish Council at Schoon, who said, not on your Nelly. So David wandered sadly back to England to sit in the tower again. 1354, with all the war stuff going on with Charles and the peace stuff going on with the popes, Edward wanted to make a deal in Scotland so that they didn't mess things up for him. So, he dropped a whole load of unreasonable stuff, agreed to dump poor old Bailey in the dustbin of history, and as long as the Scots paid a ransom of 60,000 quid, they'd all be squared up. That was need. No need for the Scots to subjugate themselves to the English, but of course they couldn't be making war while David was on parole in Scotland, raising the ransom. And 60 grand would take them a few years. Yahoy. So, where are we then in this platting business? In November 1355, Edwards got a couple of ways this could go. On the one hand, he's got the war option. Charles is telling him that he's straight up gov, on your honour me honour, cross my heart, hope to die, I'm your man. On the other hand, he's got the way of peace, and a passport to a happy life, and in either world, he keeps the Scots quiet and makes himself a bob or two. You might remember that the popes at this stage are no longer living in Rome, but are in Avignon, in what is now France. So right at the end of 1354, Lancaster turned up with his company at Avignon to start the serious business of finalising the Treaty of Guines that would apparently turn the kings of England into major landowners in western France again. It's a grand old affair. He was met by a ceremonial cortege of 200 riders. The roads were stuffed with people watching. Lancaster plays it for all he's worth, throwing parties and chucking the money around. But in the background, things were not going the way they wanted. The local negotiating team reported that, basically, they seemed to be getting nowhere. Neither the Pope nor the French actually seemed interested. England? Where's that? No, they were just talking about Charles and John and how to make peace between those guys. That was French stuff. You know, interesting, important. John would squish Edward sometime. No need to worry about all of that stuff. This was confirmed when King John's embassy finally arrived in January 1355. They had nothing to offer. And I have to say, it shouldn't have been too much of a shock. It was something of a gobsmacking deal. No, while the English had been living in hope, John had been sitting in a palace with his military advisers, the constable Jacques de Beaumont, the two marshals, Audrehom and Clermont, and his captain in the south, the Count of Armagnac. They weren't talking peace. They were discussing how to take war with fire and sword to the English. They would run a massive campaign in Normandy against Charles and they'd persuade the Scots to make war in Edward's backyard. Lancaster kept it going for a while, getting through a hundred barrels of wine in the process. But in January 1355, the negotiations all finally fell to pieces. The best the Pope could get was a truce extended to June 1355 and the whole thing ended up with a brutal reassertion by Lancaster of Edward's claim to the throne of France. The party and that particular strand of the week's plat was over. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Back in England, Edward's war plan was based on the principle, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, i.e. another two-pronged attack on France, north and south. The plans in the north were all around this golden opportunity with Charles of Navarre. There was to be a massive invasion led by Lancaster into Normandy, linking up with Charles. He'd have the old guard with him, William Bahoon, the Earl of Northampton, for example. But in the south, a new power had arisen. At the age of 24, Edward, Prince of Wales, sometime to be known as Black Prince, would have his first independent campaign. From now on, folks, we're going to call him the Black Prince. No one at the time would have done so, but to us Angles, he's the Black Prince, and so Black Prince it shall be. So an army of 800 men-at-arms and 1,400 mounted archers were to go with him, to be joined by the local forces in Gascony. At his side is a new group of famous war leaders. Now sadly, I'd not introduced you before this to this lot of war leaders. So more names coming up, everyone, since I'm going to introduce you to them in advance of the Poitiers campaign next time. These, unfortunately, are in addition to the lot we mentioned last week, Hugh Calverley and Robert Knowles. Sorry about that. There are earls, Robert Ufford, the Earl of Suffolk, and one of those in the Nottingham Tunnel, so you might remember him. There's John de Vere, the Earl of Oxford, who had commanded the Prince's division at Cressy the Earl of Salisbury, the son of Edward's dead best mate from the early years of his reign, the Earl of Warwick, and finally Sir John Chandos and Sir James Audley. All these men are experienced men of war, and most of them Knights of the Garter. Let me tell you a bit more about them. John Chandos had been part of the inner circle of men around the Black Prince from an early age, since 1339 for sure. His father was a reasonably obscure knight, and given that Chandos was early given an annuity for his better support in the estate of a knight, we can guess that like Calverley and Knowles, he wasn't awash with wealth. He had won fame for his exploits at the Siege of Cambrai in 1339, when he'd fought a French squire in single combat. He fought at Sloys and at Cressy. He was part of the king's warriors and a man of the court. Before the Battle of Winchelsea in 1350, the king ordered Chandos to sing a ballad for them all to keep them occupied. Chandos was a founder member of the Order of the Garter and was to prove one of England's foremost leaders over the next 15 years. James Audley is less prominent than Chandos, probably a household knight, but still a constant companion of the prince at tournaments and at court, and also part of the Cressy campaign. For him, fame will come as part of Poitiers and the Black Prince's career in Gascony. The Earl of Oxford is more of an old-timer, 44 years old, and a constant companion of Edward's, and now the Black Prince. The same applies to Thomas Beecham, the Earl of Warwick, 
and how he's managed to avoid our story so far is beyond me. The Earl of Warwick is also in his forties, and has also fought at most of the great encounters of the war so far. So you get the picture. I keep warbling on about the fact that the story of Edward's English glory is is one of a series of great war leaders, and here are more of them. Oxford, Warwick, Audley and Chandos. We should also say something about the Black Prince himself. The problem, in a way, is the traditional one of medieval characters. The writing is all dressed-up stuff, traditional, formulaic. The accounts and other documentary evidence just show us what he did, when, without much colour about his character and all that sort of thing. But as far as we can know, he seems to have been an impressive physical character, and while he has his health, he's in the thick of battle. He inspired enormous loyalty from the people around him, and you can see why. He was extravagantly generous with money and favour, self-assured, confident. He is genuinely a grade-A, honest-to-goodness military star. There's something about his exploits that are more impressive than Edward's. A greater range and flexibility, more ambition to go on the offensive. On the other hand, he's arrogant, impatient of opposition. And while in the glory is, this doesn't matter so much, since everything he touches turns to gold. It will stand against him when life gets more difficult. It's a good place also to make a comment about the way English armies were recruited. The English men-at-arms, though not the archers, were to be recruited entirely from the lands of the prince and of these lords that went with him, rather than by a general commission of array. This was done then by a process called indenture that I've mentioned before, i.e. a written contract between lord and man, usually based on a sum of money. So what we get is an army made up of the companies of a group of lords. These companies essentially looked increasingly like mini-armies within the main army, so while we focus on the number of fighting men recruited, alongside them would be miners, carpenters, farriers and all, all the extra people needed to keep an army on the road. These companies fought, lived and died together. It meant they knew how to fight together, and they developed an esprit de corps. In an unquantifiable way, this added mightily to the coherence and strength of the English armies. So, by July 1355, the prince was in Gascony, whining and dining the local lords and preparing them for another expedition. In the north, ships were being collected for Lancaster's expedition. By May 1355, Charles had set off from Navarre with his troops, supposedly to meet up with Lancaster. On the 7th of May, King John went to Saint-Denis to collect the Oriflamme and proclaimed the Arrière-Bon to raise an army to destroy Charles's power in Normandy. But in the background, there was all manner of goings-on. John's mum was absolutely horrified at this family spat. Plenty of courtiers were equally horrified and they all worked on John. Charles kept sending letters that left as much wriggle room as humanly possible. And by the time Charles landed in Cherbourg on the 5th of July, John had been so thoroughly worked over that he decided to give way. Meanwhile, poor old Lancaster had been desperately trying to get across the Channel, but once again the wind had a major impact on English history, because he was still trying in August. And then came the bombshell. Charles and John had kissed and made up again, and the English strategy was in ruins. 
Lancaster's expedition was cancelled. However, Edward had a problem, so he did. In the south, his son had gathered an army, which he was fully intending to use, expecting to meet only the local forces that the Count of Armagnac could raise against him. But now King John was also sitting there with an army that he had raised to total Charles of Navarre. So there was a real strategic danger that the Black Prince would be caught between hammer and anvil and be squished like a bug. So Edward's 1355 campaign is an interesting one. What Edward did was to take a portion of Lancaster's men and prepared to hop over to Calais for what was in effect a diversionary raid. Just as he prepared to go, another plank fell out of the year's strategic edifice. Behind him, the news arrived that the Scots, encouraged by French gold, had repudiated the truce and marched into Northumberland, killing, looting, destroying, raping and burning everything in sight, with William Douglas leading the charge. Edward was at Sandwich in Kent in the southeast of England when he heard. Did he panic? Did he heck? He dropped a note to the wardens of the northern marches, and by the end of October he was in Calais, ready to rock, and indeed ready to rule. The resulting campaign lasted just a couple of weeks. Edward came out of Calais, John refused to fight, John scorched the earth, so Edward had no supplies. Edward went back to Calais and was back in England before you could say five-year wool subsidy. But he had achieved the main objective. The French army had stayed in the north, and given the lateness of the season, once Edward had left, John disbanded it. Now I have to say alternative interpretations of this briefest of campaigns are available. The alternative view would be that Edward charged at it. He failed to prepare, he was overconfident, John's scorched earth policy cooked his goose. And John's scorched earth policy cooked his goose. Well, you pays your money and takes your choice. I know where the clever money is. But I'm sticking to my story nonetheless. However, it has to be said that in the meantime, Douglas had captured Berwick. In the words of Mr Incredible, Edward might well have felt like the maid. As soon as one mess was sorted, another one appeared. Back down south then, the prince and what became known as the Great Chavorsay. It was late in the season by any standards, the 5th of October when he set out from Bordeaux with an army of somewhere between six and 8,000 men. Now to my great shame, I'm not going to go into the Great Chavorsay in any great depth, but let me just note a couple of things. First of all, if the Black Prince was looking to establish a reputation for breaking the mould, for taking things further than his father, he made a great start. There was nothing particularly innovative about the Chavorsay. The object was the same as ever, to bring fire and sword to the enemy. So the army split into three and advanced on a wide front, burning and destroying as it went. A huge pall of smoke and a ring of fire extending for miles around marked their progress. This wasn't new. Actually, earlier in the year, Jean d'Armagnac had done something similar in Gascony and the provinces just west of Gascony were horribly used to the whole concept. But the Black Prince didn't stop. He kept going further and further east. Jean d'Armagnac, Clermont, the Marshal of France, and Bourbon, the Constable, were holed up in Toulouse with the army, just watching and waiting. What for, exactly, nobody knew. 
and a bit like those Vikings years ago who had marched round Wessex with impunity, the Black Prince passed to lose and just kept going. By so doing, he entered territory unused to this kind of vicious and brutal violence, with fortresses poorly prepared. One of the fattest lands in the world, Froissart described it. Jonathan Sumption picks a quote from Froissart that describes the scene repeated at many towns many times. When the English arrived, they spread out around the town and their assault parties began to throw themselves against the walls. Their archers were formed in divisions and fired volleys of arrows so dense that the defenders could no longer hold their position on the walls. Then assault parties pressed their advantage and poured across the defences to capture the place. There was tremendous slaughter and violence. The whole town was infested by the invaders. It was sacked and pillaged and everything in it carried off. The English didn't bother with mere bales of cloth when there was so much gold plate and coin to be taken. When they had captured a townsman or a peasant, they demanded ransom from him, and if he would not pay, they left him mutilated. Then they abandoned the town, burning and ruinous, its citadel demolished and thrown down. It pays to take a few minutes to visualise all of this, and think what it really means. On the one hand, the Black Prince is miles from home, a large army at his back, advancing further and further into the heart of enemy territory, which takes some courage, leadership and skill. On the other hand, the destruction, pain, lives and devastation must have been truly horrendous, caused by hard-faced, brutal men. And let us make no bones about it, Froissart is still in his chivalry, I-heart, prinny phase, so you can be sure it was actually worse than he painted it. The Black Prince advanced all the way to Narbonne on the Mediterranean coast, destroying the town of Carcassonne as he passed. At this stage, he probably began to realise that he was defying gravity. Armagnac, Clermont and Bourbon were now less than 15 miles away, and at last they seemed to be trying to cut off his retreat. So, Edward gave him the slip, moving further south. But this was no desperate run for home, he kept burning and destroying as they went. On some occasions, Armagnac caught up, only to run away when the prince turned and made to fight. By the 28th of November, the black prince was back inside Gascony. So OK, there are plenty of naysayers about the relevance and importance of this campaign. He'd held no towns or castles, won no battles, yada yada. But he'd never intended to. What he'd achieved was threefold. First, he'd dealt French confidence another shattering blow. I mean, for crying aloud, Armagnac and the men responsible for France's military might, the marshal and the constable, had sat and watched the English burn all the way to the Mediterranean and had absolutely zip, nothing denada, except run away when the prince said boo. Panic spread through southern France. Montpellier demolished its suburbs and its scholars fled to Avignon. Blame and fury was heaped on the heads of the French commanders. Secondly, the Black Prince was well aware of the economic damage they cause. Economic warfare isn't a modern concept. Not only had they stripped wealth that they could use, the south of France would now not be contributing to the King of France's coffers and financing his attempt to fight back. They'd be spending the money on their own walls and houses, thank you very much. And thirdly, 
he'd built his own fearsome reputation. And in a war, reputation made a difference. We have one more slug of violence before we end this week's episode, just to clear the decks for the Poitiers campaign next time and bring our plat together. This was the campaign known as the Burnt Candlemas campaign in Scotland. We've seen its like before. Edward tipped up and retook Berwick and then moved north in good old three-column fire-and-sword idiom and put Scotland to the sword, and indeed to the fire. On his way, Edward Balliol, now an old man, came to meet him. It had been as clear as the proverbial bell that Edward had been quite happy to throw Balliol to the wolves, now that the level of his support was never knee-high to a grasshopper. Balliol decided to jump before he was pushed. He stormed up to Edward and delivered a defiant speech, quote, roaring like a lion. He took the crown from his head, scooped a handful of earth from the Scottish ground and handed them to the King of England, supposedly passing his rights across. Edward slipped him a pension of 2,000 quid, and Balliol lived out his remaining years in Yorkshire, dying in 1364. At least he'd given it a go. So Edward was back in England by February 1356. The chroniclers said what a waste of time the whole thing was, and in good traditional fashion, as soon as Edward left, northern England erupted in flames, lit by Douglas. But look, the likelihood is that Edward's hopes of ruling Scotland had died a good decade ago. He essentially wanted the Scottish problem to go away. He'd had a little play, found out that the Scots were pretty tough players, and now he didn't want to play anymore. So Bert Candlemas showed once more that Edward could burn Scotland with impunity whenever he pleased, and it showed the Scottish king that too. So by April a truce was in place, and the next occasion the English were forced into a major invasion of Scotland was not to be for 30 years in 1385. Within a few weeks of the truce being signed, William Douglas and the flower of Scottish chivalry upped sticks and headed for France, where kicking the English was still valued and respected. So, it's good to see that we are back to uncontrolled, overlong episodes. Next time, we'll be in two weeks' time, and it's one of the crowning glories of English arms. Yes, sorry, but it's yet more war, battles, dates and all that jazz. But look, it's Poitiers. Hey, Dad. I hope you'll join me. If you don't, no hard feelings. And good luck, everyone. And have a great fortnight. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.